welcome to the sixth episode of the 39A podcast. This is Anoop Surendranath from Project 39A, and we're a criminal justice program based out of the National Law University in Delhi. In this episode of the 39A podcast, we have Rupali Francesca Samuel hosting a conversation with Siddharth Agarwal, a criminal law practitioner based in New Delhi. In this episode, Siddharth argues that the stage of discharge envisaged under Section 251 of the Criminal Procedure Code is an integral part of all criminal trials and should not be eliminated from summons tribal cases. On reviewing the Supreme Court's decisions on discharge and summons cases, he calls for a clarification of the law through an unequivocal recognition of the power of magistrates to order a discharge under Section 251 of the Criminal Procedure Code. Thank you, Siddharth and Rupali, for giving us your time. Hi, Siddharth. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's always a delight to hear you explain the workings of criminal law. And uh, I'm really excited that we get to kick off this series with your expert comments. Thanks, Rupali. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm, I do hope that I live up to, uh, you know, these initial words that you've spoken about me. Uh, with that hope in mind, let's let's start getting to this. Yeah, of course. So in this episode, we're talking about summons cases and most specifically, whether a magistrate has the power to discharge an accused in a summons triable case. Now, various high courts have taken different positions on this question and the Supreme Court uh, appears to be moving in a different direction. So we're here to talk about what this issue is all about, why it's important, and what is the best way to resolve the disagreements on this question. Maybe, Siddharth, we should start with, you know, what a summons case is. So can you tell us what it is and why is this category of cases important? The way, the, the way our criminal procedure code is structured, uh, it, has, it has different categories of cases. Uh, so, for example, there are sessions triable cases. There are warrants cases which are uh, triable in in different ways uh, by a magistrate as well. And then there are cases called as summons cases. Now, typically, uh, you know, as per definitions uh, involved, you, what you're looking at is any case which is punishable up to two years uh, as imprisonment is uh, regarded as a summons case. The segregation itself between these summons, warrants, and sessions tribal cases is uh, broadly, as a rule of thumb, dealt with on the uh, on the seriousness of the punishment or the, or the length of punishment which is prescribed, and the correlation is uh, broadly to the perceived gravity of that offence. So, from that point of view, we are really dealing with one. A microcosm of that larger animal, as it were, uh, which is summons cases. And I think the the uh, discussion that we're having today will actually center around a subset of that, which is summons cases which are filed on a private complaint uh, instead of being instituted on a police report. Okay. So there are these tiers to cases under the CRPC that relate to gravity, and summons cases are low down in that scheme, right? Yes, lower down as far as the punishment is concerned. So as we said, zero to two years, and uh, lower down in terms of the elaborateness of the trial which is prescribed. 
so uh, having said that and I, and i hear a tinge of uh, you know is it really that important to spend time uh, discussing it but in today's date especially when you're looking at uh, you know a deluge of defamation cases and uh, a significant part of our uh, legal system is dealing with uh, check bouncing cases these are two prime examples of what uh, a summons case is both of which are filed on a complaint so in sh- in sheer volume of what our uh, legal system deals with i think it constitutes a very significant part of it okay yeah and defamation is really important because um it you know relates to sp- to free speech and the ability of journalists to do their job without harassment so it is important for us to pay attention to what the procedure is for summons cases and more importantly what are the early exit options in these cases if they've been introduced with a malified or vexatious motivation so uh, rupali i i uh, and and as a practitioner and as a student of law i uh, want to approach this problem from a slightly more neutral standpoint i i don't see this as an issue of early exit i see it as how does the system find a balance between getting justice to a genuinely aggrieved complainant in a in a uh, specified time frame versus how does it protect the interest of a wrongly accused person to avail of the maximum remedies that the law entails and allows under the uh under the rules that we follow and i think it is really this balance that if we keep this in mind we will find according to me uh the right answer rather than looking at it from the point of view of uh is it an early exit for the accused versus uh you know as a complainant uh can i can i get this complaint decided as quickly as possible it, the system owes a duty to both and i think that's where the interpretational exercise should take us okay sure fair enough um this balance that you're describing uh, that's something that the crpc aims to do right it's not just a list of rules there there is some kind of logic to how the criminal procedure code is designed yes uh, absolutely and i think the uh, the design of the criminal procedure code uh, essentially dealt with the issues of the balance between societal interest and the interest of the accused and obviously the uh, the rights of the accused and the protections afforded to the accused are critical in that process i think where the crpc was a little i think uh, you know hasn't it is now come catching up is on the issues of victimology and and the rights of victims etc which is a slightly different debate but given that we are dealing with complaint cases where victims come forward <clears throat> themselves to prosecute a complaint before a court i think there may there may be overlaps but you're absolutely right the overall context of the criminal procedure code is to ensure that societal need for punishing crime can happen in the most dignified manner uh, while keeping the interest of that individual intact because if we are able to keep that individual's interest intact ultimately it is the societal interest which will benefit okay great 
Um, I want to ask you one more background question about the CRPC. Uh, you've hinted at how you know some portions might be outdated, and that's natural considering the origins of the CRPC were pre-independence uh, and came in the late 19th century. So how has the Indian constitution you know, changed how we should look at the procedural code or changed how judges and lawyers can think about criminal law? I think the constitutional spirit has to ultimately be the guiding principle which makes us interpret any words of any statute. And more so in the context of criminal law when, uh, you know, obviously there is going to be the context of a literal interpretation. Uh, but if we keep our constitutional ideals in mind, if we keep uh, the, the basic principles of fairness and, uh, you know, the, the rights of the accused, especially, because ultimately the person to to on trial to to get punishment from the society today is that accused i think if we keep do, these two things in mind uh, this will give body to whatever words that exist on the statute book and uh, the interplay between criminal law and the constitution i think is is central to that process where even if we do not consciously look at you know articles 14 19 21 and, and everything else at a background level, any if I have to err, if I have to even look at an interpretation, I must always look at it that it is consistent with furthering the goals of the Constitution. It's not enough to say that it's not my interpretation is not violative of the Constitution. I think the objective of any person who's interpreting uh, criminal procedure should should actually answer that yes, the interpretation that I place will take this, uh, this this theory of constitutionalism forward. Okay, now that we've got that important background in place, let's get into the topic in a little more detail. Perhaps we should start by asking, what does discharge mean? And are there different rules for discharge for different catch kinds of cases? Yeah, so I uh, I think the that question is uh, is, is extremely important and leads us into understanding what the overall structure of a criminal process is. And the overall structure of the criminal process will not necessarily change between the kinds of cases or the classifications that we may have. So what I would like to do, and, and this is, uh, you know, I, I have to either thank or blame all my teachers in the past, both at college as well as in the profession, to indicate that there are three stages that any criminal case will deal with. Stage one is cognizance and issuance of process, which is the beginning of a criminal prosecution in, in court. Stage two is the formal accusation. It's whether I call it charge, I call it notice. It is the place where a court considers in some depth, in some uh, detail, with the assistance of the accused as well as that of the prosecution, as to what exactly the trial has to be for. And stage three is the stage of the final judgment, where the court, after a trial, is able to decide on the basis of evidence which has been led, 
having been cross-examined by the accused and come to a conclusion on whether the accused is guilty or not guilty. The three stages of this larger criminal process also vary in terms of the kind of detail that the judge is expected to go into, the kind of uh, the, the legal test that will apply to them. And all as, as you go forward, you'll realize that the stage of cognizance or issuance of process, important as it is, is at a certain level, the stage of, dis- of charge, framing of charges and that formal accusation is at a higher level. And the stage of judgment, which is the final acquittal or, or uh, pronouncement of guilt, is at the higher level. So in these gradations, and keeping these gradations in mind, uh, is the necessity to understand that this central, uh, this, the second piece, is what we are concerned with today when you ask what is discharge. So discharge is that a person who has been summoned to face a criminal trial, to face a criminal case, is not put up on trial. The court has found some material, some legal rationale, some factual basis of saying that to place this individual on trial would not be correct. There are different ways in which, Rupali, uh, uh, this can happen and, and different reasons when it could happen. But broadly speaking, I think as if, if I was to look at it in a very uh, plain and simple terms, the test really comes down to is this, that if, if I take the prosecution material, so if I take the entire st- witness statements, documents, as unrebutted, without the accused exercising his right of cross-examination, without the accused being able to bring on record any material that the accused may be in possession of or may, may call from third-party sources, if on the strength of the prosecution material itself, the accused can show that you would not convict me, that the case would not even lead to a stage of grave suspicion against me, then in that situation, the accused is entitled to a discharge. So a discharge really is a what I would call a safety valve, a valve that protects the accused from undergoing rigors of a trial, a valve that protects the system from spending valuable time, resources, and money on engaging in a fruitless trial. So keeping this in mind, this, this middle stage, the stage of charge or discharge, is accordingly a very critical filter that we deal with. Okay, so if I understand correctly, discharge is the first occasion for the accused to participate in this process, but it's also pre-trial. So it's before any evidence in the case is actually taken down and um, it's a chance for the judge to determine whether the case should proceed to that trial stage or not. It is the first engagement, yes, Rupali, but depending on which Uh, which process you are following, it may in fact even be after some evidence is recorded. So for example, in a a warrants case uh, instituted on a complaint triable by a magistrate, uh, you do have the concept of a pre-charge evidence. And so uh, it it wouldn't be completely correct to say that that it is without any evidence being recorded. But I think the, the larger point is that the court 
till the stage of charge hasn't applied their mind to specifically which offenses and for what accusations the accused must actually face trial what it's it's okay if i was to take a a very broad and a very general analogy it is the stage of framing of issues in a suit what are the issues on which what is the the, the objective of a charge is to put the accused to notice that in the event a b c d facts are found and an inference of x y z uh, offenses is made out he would be punished for that purpose ultimately the the you know blood that is flowing through the entire criminal procedure code at each stages how do i put an accused to notice of what is going to happen if he is not able to discharge uh, if the prosecution is able to discharge their burden and if he is not able to rebut that with with adequate material so i think from that point of view this this stage of charge and discharge is a very critical component of our criminal process because this is the place and this is the time when the accused is is given that information is put to notice as it were which forms the basis of the entire trial why is this aspect of putting the accused to notice so important in a criminal case i, I think uh, it's putting to notice of any litigant in any kind of uh, uh, legal proceeding i think is intrinsic to uh, to a system which is based on uh, on rule of law but in the context of criminal law when i have a, a presumption of innocence which is ingrained i must not be taken by surprise where the case itself shifts of the prosecution that for example i am being tried for the murder of a and by the time the case finishes i am being convicted of murder of b so the objective of this legal proceeding is to ensure that an accusation is made first the material on the basis of which that accusation is being made is provided to the accused and then the accused is able to defend himself against that accusation it is this central principle which is really the fundamental basis of his right of silence so if he has to remain silent then first of all the prosecution must in fact show that there is a basis of going to trial otherwise we can pick up anybody from the road and start asking questions and start speaking things so the way that our both constitutional structure as well as the structure of the uh, of the criminal law processes is concerned is clear is that you must have a crystallized accusation first after which an accused can be called upon to enter upon his defense whether it's done through cross examination or it's done through calling of his witnesses that's a different story but it is this process of crystallization of the accusation that we are concerned with in the concept of charge and discharge okay thanks for that um now the crpc has different processes for how the stage of charge is dealt with depending on the category of cases so what does it say about summons cases in particular 
Yeah, so this is uh, and, and this is an interesting thing where uh, we have, as, as you rightly said, different kinds of cases and different kinds of procedures that are that are prescribed. But there are also central themes that run through this. And the central theme, as we you know, uh, touched upon a little while earlier, was that if there is no basis of moving to a trial, then a judge or a magistrate will not do so. And that is fleshed out differently in different provisions. So you have you know, uh, 239, uh, 245 when it comes to you know, magistrates in warrants trials. And, and similarly now, when it comes to a summons case, there are two provisions where the wording is slightly different from whether we look at the sessions triable cases or the magistrate triable cases for warrants cases. The provisions that we will deal with are 251 and to a lesser extent 258. So the central portion where a magistrate is, is authorized to put an accused to notice that provision for us is 251. And unlike the other provisions which deal with discharge, and, and fortunately or unfortunately, 251 does not specifically talk about discharge. So all that it deals with is the power of a magistrate to put the substance of the accusation to an accused in order for then the trial or the witness action to commence. Okay, so it, why why does two fifty one deal with discharge differently from the other sections? Rupali, I, I think let me put it like this. Let's we we must go in the context of how the how the uh, law mandates things should happen. So discharge actually is a secondary question. The primary question is, can I frame charge? Can I move to trial? That's a positive obligation on the state. And so the provision which deals with, to, with the framing of charge or equal to that, you know, there's no need to frame a formal charge in that sense in a, in a summons case. But the, the provision which deals with that formal accusation to be made is 251. Now the difficulty is, and, and what we are seeing practically is, the debate today rages on in the absence of the words pertaining to discharge, does 251 allow me as a judge, as a magistrate, to exercise that power of discharge? So that's where the, you know, the debate is. But 251 does contain some element of discretion. Oh, absolutely. So when it comes to, uh, when it comes to figuring out what is the obligation of a magistrate at the stage of 251, if we look at the existing language, certain things are clear, but the central piece is that the particulars of the offense of which he is accused shall be stated to the accused and he shall be asked whether he pleads guilty or has any defense to make. Now, implicit in this, this is not an administrative exercise that is happening. Implicit in this, at the level of a judicial officer who's who's undertaking the solemn duty of exercising 251, is a satisfaction that the judicial officer has reached that there is an offense of which that person must be accused. 
But if at this stage, at 251, the magistrate finds from the record available with him, without taking a single piece of evidence outside of what the complainant has provided to him, that there is no offense of which he can in all honesty accuse that individual, would it be correct then to say that no, the magistrate must go ahead and irrespective, mechanically, state the particulars of the offense which have been put in that complaint and move ahead as if he was just a post office. That would be completely antithetical to how we look at uh, both the role of the judicial officers in this context as well as to the rights of the accused. I hear what you're saying, but I want to push back a little bit because Chapter 20, and which deals with summons cases, and Section 251 in particular does omit the word discharge. So there has to have been some logic to deliberately omitting that word, right? Yeah, and, and you know, that's a good question, one which I may not necessarily have a ready answer to. But the, quest, the question, I think, is leading us to only one place. Is there implicit powers available in the CRPC or does everything have to be explicitly stated? So let me give an example of, let us say, 313. The 313 CRPC is a provision where after the evidence is led and, uh, you know, the accused before he's called upon to enter defense, 313 is an exercise that is carried out. The purpose of 313 is, and again, and you'll, you'll see this, this same thread of putting accused to notice at each stage of, of that criminal trial come through. Because in 313 now, what the judge is doing is, he is collating the evidence that has been led so far and is then putting incriminating circumstances to the accused for two purposes. Number one, to elicit from the accused his explanation even though it's without oath. But what this does is it puts the accused to notice that I as a judge prima facie am of the view that this piece of evidence or this circumstance is appearing in evidence against you and you are now being called upon to answer this. Answer this either orally in, and offer me an explanation or lead evidence if you have to. So an accused gets notice that I must now lead evidence in this context because this is a circumstance which is being identified as a circumstance against me. Now 313 does not deal with the concept of either discharge or acquittal at that stage. You envisage a scenario where a judge looks at the evidence and says there is no incriminating circumstance in front of me. Now am I supposed to mechanically put every single line of the prosecution evidence to the accused and, and ask him for some explanation or the other, which would make a mockery of the process and be an embarrassment to the, to the system? Or does the, does the judge at that moment exercise judicial discretion to say, I do not have a single incriminating circumstance that I wish to put to you, I am not going through this process of 313. I am not even calling upon you to enter upon defense. So this is, and, and there are courts which, which have taken this view that this is a legitimate way of dealing with it. Because the obligation on the judge in that moment is to find that jurisdictional fact 
before that power can be exercised. So before you exercise 313, you must come to a conclusion that yes, there are incriminating circumstances. And if they are not there, you cannot exercise that power. Similarly, in 251, the jurisdictional fact of actually putting anything to the accused is there must be particulars of an offense of which he is to be accused. And if the judge cannot find those, then it is not the job of a judge to act mechanically like a post office and say whatever the complainant had said. So the, the answer that I have to you is that yes, the words of discharge are not available. They are not there. But both in terms of the way in which the larger CRPC is structured, keeping natural justice in mind, keeping the obligation of putting the accused to notice in mind, but more centrally, keeping the need for existence of those circumstances to be available before a magistrate exercises positively the power under 251. That's the question. So the, I, will, I will place the question back and turn it on its head and say, how does one justify a magistrate exercising 251 when in his opinion, nobody else is, in his opinion, there is no offense of which he can legitimately charge the accused. So that absence of the jurisdictional facts will take away the power under 251. Dropping of proceedings, stopping of proceedings, discharge, all of these will then become words. The idea is I cannot move forward and if I cannot move forward, it has to end. Can you tell us a bit about, uh, you mentioned 258 as well. Yeah, so the, the 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 dichotomy or or uh, you know the difficulty in in what I am uh, saying and proposing comes from a provision which is in the same chapter, and that pertains to the power to stop proceedings in a summons case. This power under two fifty eight is actually restricted to cases which are otherwise than on a complaint, which means either suomoto or with reference to police reports. These are the two other ways in which criminal processes can, can uh, commence. So 258 contains a specific provision which talks about stoppage of proceedings prior to the judgment, which means prior to the end stage. It is my assessment that 258 still does not mean actually a discharge. If, you, if we see the language of 258, it says that I have the power to stop proceedings at any stage prior to judgment. Where and, and if it is made after the evidence of the principal witnesses, it will be acquittal. And in any other case, which means that evidence may have commenced, but principal witnesses may not have been recorded, it will be, it will have the effect of discharge. Now these, these words, effect of discharge, presume that there is really a power of discharge even within summons cases. Otherwise, there's no question of effect of discharge in a matter where you have all you have you have framed notice, started taking evidence, not recorded the principal witnesses, exercise power under 258, and stopped proceedings with the effect of a discharge. So 258, according to me, does not necessarily preclude or exclude the exercise of framing of notice or discharge at the stage of 251. I think it is an additional power 
which is available in the context of police cases uh, to available to a magistrate for dropping of proceedings okay uh, but it only applies to police cases which means complaint cases don't have this provision where you can ask for stopping of the proceedings that doesn't seem to make sense to me because complaint cases don't go through any sort of extra investigation by the police and there's a higher risk right of it being potentially vexatious or frivolous i think the the point also can be looked at in another way that we have a situation where uh, you know when a police report is filed even with reference to a summons case there is you know the power of further investigation new material comes obviously the court exercises powers under 258 for good reason this is not again merely because the power exists does not mean that it can be exercised in any circumstance the indicator within 258 is there is no no specific indicator as to what is the circumstances in which you will exercise that power so obviously there is implicit in 258 that something has happened after notice has been framed during the course of evidence and some material has come or has been brought to the attention of the judge and the judge has stopped uh, those proceedings the fact that actually that material is either emanating from or is at least verified or endorsed by a third party agency such as the the law enforcement may have a role to play in that process but when we come to a complaint case by itself as a complainant he is putting whatever evidence there is and as an accused the accused will have a right to rebut that evidence so 258 power is not a very uh, routinely used power or 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 on very uh, specified parameters i think it's a it's a power in the larger context where i would imagine uh, new material in the context of investigative material could even come which gives to the magistrate the power to stop those proceedings okay let's go back to section 251 you've explained it really clearly uh, but the supreme court it appears doesn't seem to agree with the interpretation that you've given about this power of the magistrate to issue a discharge in a summons case and there are two big cases that you know are commonly referenced when saying that this magistrate's power does not exist that's the first case is adalat prasad and the second case is a case called subramanyam seturam um in this conversation i want to go into you know whether those cases were correctly decided and whether they actually decide this issue of um whether the magistrate has a power to issue a discharge under section 251 so uh, before we go into adalat prasad and subramaniam seturam maybe we should start with the case that preceded both of these which is km matthew versus state of kerala so can you tell us a little bit about that case yeah so i think uh, we let, let's look at this way 1973 the crpc is is uh, you know uh, comes into force we do not we have this current situation of 251 in the context of summons uh, cases uh, on a complaint there is no specific power of discharge etc now what happened in km matthew a case of defamation was that the accused 
came before the magistrate and filed an application after he was summoned asking for recall of that summoning order pointing out certain facts or certain legal provisions certain fallacies in the complaint the fact that no specific role had been ascribed to that accused in the complaint and asked the uh, trial court to exercise its discretion and recall the order that that very trial court had issued summoning him when this matter reached the supreme court obviously one of the issues that was dealt with was whether the court has the power of review and does it need a specific legal provision because there is none in allowing the magistrate to recall its own order in the context of that matter the supreme court dealt with it in a in a manner to say that if the complaint itself does not disclose does not even allege a role to an accused and a summons has been issued to that accused irrespective of that then when it is pointed out to the court concerned that this is the position effectively what is being pointed out is that the jurisdictional basis for summoning me did not exist and does not exist you please recall that summoning order and the court proceeded to to say two things one that you do not need a specific or explicit provision dealing with it because this power has to be read implicit into the power of summoning under 204 of the crpc now this uh, uh, entire situation was a question that arose in context of 204 exercised accused comes after summons are received and says 204 wrongly exercised that's the that's the framework in which km matthew was decided now this is 1992 2004 we have these and you pointed out these two decisions two decision given in quick succession so if you look at it august 2004 is adalat prasad i think september 2004 is uh, subramanyam seturaman and adalat prasad itself was a was a warrants case it went into the issue of whether you can recall a summoning order or not whether this power is ex- is, is exercised correctly or not and whether km matthew was uh, correctly or uh, decided or not now while they were looking at the issue of does a magistrate have the power to recall the summoning order the court obviously held that km matthew was not correctly decided that there was no such uh, power available that power is not implicit in 204 but in order to to support their conclusions on the ability of a magistrate to recall that summoning order the court made observations regarding the absence of discharge as a concept for summons cases based on a complaint so i think what we have is that even though what was not an issue with reference to uh, adalat prasad it it was not dealing with a summons case and it was definitely not dealing with a case where the exercise of 251 power was in question it in order to support its decision and reasoning for recall of summoning order 
made certain observations which obviously impact the ability of a court to discharge in a summons case based on a complaint. When this was raised again in Subramaniam Seturaman, as I said, soon thereafter, that was a case of a summons tribal case uh, issued um, on instituted on a complaint. And in that case, the correctness of Adalat Prasad was brought into question. The Supreme Court at that time in Subramaniam Seturaman first upheld whatever it had said for Adalat Prasad and applied it even to summons cases. The, the, the two questions that you framed, Rupali, number one of whether it, they are correctly decided or not, and second is do they actually impact 251 uh, by itself? I think on the first question, I am, I am, re, I would, I would tend to agree with the Supreme Court to say that once 204 has been exercised, and a court does not have a criminal court does not have the power of review, then. To, to invest with that, that court, with that power of recalling of that summoning order would be dangerous. And there are remedies which are available to an accused, either in terms of challenging that order vertically or waiting for the next stage, which is really the stage of charge and figuring out whether the accused has to be charged or discharged. The second part of that question of does it really impact 251 now, I, at least uh, speaking for myself, and, and again, I, I come from uh, purely a, a practitioner with a slight academic bent of mind, can only say that ultimately the Supreme Court was never dealing with the issue of 251. It never adverted to what is the role that a judge must actually do at the stage of 251. And having not done that, those observations may have supported the court's decision in the context of 204, but I do not think that they hold the field or are a proposition to say that 251 is a mechanical exercise. And I think that question is not covered either by Adala Prasad or by Subramanian Seturaman and is open for interpretation even today. In fact, a lot of water has flown under the bridge, which you know I assume we'll soon come to. Okay, I just want to understand better what this distinction is between revisiting the issue of process and seeking a discharge under 251. Your, the entire distinction you're drawing uh, is based on a difference between these two stages. Can you just remind us why the test would be substantially different if you were arguing for a recall of the summons versus if you were arguing for a discharge under 251. Yeah. And I think the, the best example really, and let's look at Adalat Prasad facts. The case involves 420, etc. So it's a warrants uh, case, tribal by a magistrate. The accused receives a summons. So the, as far as the magistrate is concerned, the power that is exercised is 204. Summons have been issued. The accused has received the summons and has come to court. The accused has now one of two things that the accused can do. Number one, ask for a recall of that summoning order saying that your exercise at 204 was not correct. This is the KM Matthew uh, paradigm which allowed people after KM Matthew but before Adhata Prasad to do. 
The second option to the accused is that the accused waits and lets the matter proceeds proceed to the level of say 245, which is actually about framing of charge. And at the stage of charge, either under 245.1 or 245.2 is able to demonstrate to a court that no charge should be framed against. The question of whether power was correctly exercised at 204 is different from whether the power should be exercised at 245. It is still in future. Similarly, when I apply this to a summons case, my challenging the 204 is one thing. But if I do not challenge that 204, I can still as an accused insist upon the due performance of 251, a judicial performance of 251. And if that be the situation, then the fact that 204 was correctly or incorrectly exercised loses significance. Otherwise, by that logic, a person who has not challenged a 204 order issuing process against him has to necessarily wait till the stage of acquittal in order to be exonerated. Maybe this, the reason why they are different and that distinction that I am drawing goes back to those three stages of the criminal process that I had identified early on in this discussion. Stage of cognizance and issuance of summons, stage one. Stage of formal accusation, stage two. And stage of judgment, stage three. Each one of them is anterior to the other, but does not have an impact on the other. Only because one has been done does not mean the second one will necessarily follow. The test of the second one of the formal accusation is different. The, the, the seriousness with which and the depth with which the, the judge must look at the matter at, the, at these three stages is, is different. The, the, the exercise of jurisdiction at 204 stage is that of a very prima facie case. The exercise at the stage of charge or the formal accusation involves even a limited power of sifting the material for the purpose of finding out grave suspicion. And at the final stage, it is beyond reasonable doubt. It is the same learned judge. It is the same material, let us assume. But the same material has to be looked at in a very different legal paradigm. And that is why there is a distinction between saying that 204 was not correctly done versus saying that the formal accusation either under 239 or under 245 or under 251 must take place in a judicial manner after the judge is satisfied that the material exists to accuse me. Now, this is also, remember, the first time that an accused can contribute to this process because the 204 exercise was behind the back of the accused. The accused was, was, it, it does, has no locus to get into that. The accused at best has a right to be present and observe the proceedings, cannot even make submissions. So it cannot be the intent of the parliament to get into a, for, for all other kinds of cases, for sessions tribal cases, for magistrate tribal cases, whether on a police report or on a complaint, for summons cases on a police report, 
for all of these it must have a situation where there is a stage 1 stage 2 stage 3 and the stage 2 is a judicial exercise which involves the judge in coming to positive findings on yes there is an offence i must put the accused on trial for but when it somehow comes to this one particular kind of offences which is complaint cases and a summons format somehow we want to say that oh the judge must now not apply his mind this for me this is the exception this is the outlier and hence wrong it could be that this is the outlier because you know these are less serious offenses and adding an extra stage might just make the process much longer we've already talked about the volume of cases in you know in this subcategory of summons cases so um i imagine the pushback is that having an additional stage might just lead to higher pendency and uh just having many more opportunities for the accused to stall the process so how would you respond to that argument yeah so rupali i th- i think the difficulty is that we uh when we act when we re- actually interpret law in a reactive mode which is to say oh you know what there is accused are now taking advantage of this of this uh, issue of charge and discharge and they're trying to get out here the difficulty is that we are now we have added or sorry we have substituted one set of problems for another so when adalat prasad and subramanyam seturaman said that you will not do a recall of summoning order and the only remedy which is available to you is a 482 please look at the number of 482 petitions that are getting filed in the high court with reference to uh, these issues which could have been dealt with by the magistrate in 5 minutes and are now clogging up the high courts now when the stays are being granted then you have judgments such as asian resurfacing to say no stay cannot be more than 6 months the difficulty in this process is that when interpretation will be guided by how people are and i'll even go to the extent of saying manipulating the system the difficulty will be we will substitute one set of problems with another the theme that runs through is that there are these three stages and at the second stage a magistrate must filter what cases is he going to take to trial and what cases will drop because of some legal or factual deficiencies it is nobody's position that an entire mini trial or an inquiry should be conducted at that stage effectively what what are the grounds on which you will exercise a 251 power if there are legal bars so for example and this will apply in the context of summons cases if there is limitation for example if you have a 138 case where time periods are prescribed by the statute and those are not met those were overlooked at the stage of cognizance in 204 by the court not pointed out by the complainant the accused comes and points out only one fact which demonstrates to the judge that he has no jurisdiction but somehow the the, the interpretation which is being placed ensures that the accused must go through that entire trial in order to come to the same conclusion which cannot change evidence is not going to change it so in all of this the fact that the system will have clogs at different levels is always going to remain like that all that we are doing is substituting one area of clogging to another 
what we ought to do instead is to allow for these remedies to exist define the parameters on which those remedies are to be exercised clearly and then proceed to exercise them swiftly it appears that some of the high courts agree with you and uh, delhi high court in particular has has interpreted adalat prasad and subramaniam setaram as not applying to the context of section 251 for all the reasons you explained about how discharge is separate from issuance of process so can you tell us a bit about uh, what has happened to these cases and how the supreme court has interpreted it and how various high courts have interpreted it yeah so everybody uh, actually right the, the delhi high court at least has now consistently uh, taken the view that irrespective of adalat prasad and irrespective of subramaniam setaraman the exercise of jurisdiction at 251 is not an empty formality and it must proceed in a way that the judge or a magistrate satisfies himself that there is material to proceed to the next stage uh we we're actually swimming in this in different directions if i you know have the liberty of saying so because what comes from the supreme court are two decisions which are peculiar so uh, the first one that i wish to to highlight here is the decision in uh, called bhushan kumar and you know bhushan kumar is a judgment which has a very you know, extremely nice passage one paragraph which really deals with this issue on 251 and you know i can do nothing better than just read out that sentence to say that it is inherent in section 251 of the code <clears throat> that when an accused appears before the trial court pursuant to summons issued under 204 in a summons trial case it is the bounden duty of the trial court to carefully go through the allegations made in the charge sheet or complaint and consider the evidence to come to a conclusion whether or not an offence is disclosed if the answer is in the affirmative the magistrate shall explain the substance of the accusation to the accused and ask him whether he pleads guilty otherwise he is bound to discharge the accused and i'm i'm stopping mid sentence here because the next few words are as per section 239 of the code now the difficulty that arises in bhushan is that this is a matter which pertain to not a summons trial this is a case where i think the offenses were in the context of a warrant trial case 420 was involved and which is why i think these observations on 251 don't appear to be uh, in the context of the matter but and and also the confusion between 251 and discharge under 239 that cannot happen because 239 is in a different chapter pertaining to a different uh, process altogether the second judgment and and so as i said bhushan has these nice uh, observations but creates confusion at the end of the day the second judgment and really not a judgment in that context is a dispute with reference to uh, there's a judgment in the context of uh, arvind kejriwal and amit sibbal where the delhi high court took the view which we discussed that 251 is an independent exercise 251 must be done judicially and the court must frame a notice only if the material exists when the matter went to the supreme court 
it was remanded back to the high court to decide afresh and on the merits. But it is evident from a reading of that particular report that it proceeded on a concession of counsel. And so as far as I am concerned, even in Amit Sibbal, Arvind Kejriwal, there is no pronouncement of the Supreme Court which deals with this issue. So what we have, uh, Rupali, is multiple high courts taking the view that uh, that this power under 251 does exist. The Supreme Court talking in ambivalent terms, as it were, uh, which leads us far away from clarity. But the larger context is that the people who are administering this this uh, provision on a day-to-day basis, 451 in, in the magisterial uh, courts, to a person, and I can say this with you know some amount of experience on this side, are taking the view that they are not in a position to exercise 251 on any judicial basis. They feel that Arvind Kejriwal versus Amit Sibbal is a judgment which hold, which comes in their way and uh, supports Adalat Prasad and Subramaniam Seturam. It is for this context that now in Delhi at least, uh, we have a reference which is pending before the, the uh, division bench of the High Court. And that matter is still pending. And uh, the only hope that I have as a practitioner is that uh, there, there should be some clarity on this. Because what we are dealing with here is the very existence of a remedy. People spend time, effort and money in, in, in espousing their grievances in a particular form of a remedy. And when that remedy after years is stated to have been a wrong remedy, difficulty is we are setting the clock back, dealing with the clogging of the system that happened because of allowing that remedy in the first place. And then by pointing another direction and for another remedy, we are telling them to go stand in line again. So the the only uh, hope that one has is for clarity, because more than anything else, it is clarity which serves the system. Okay, Siddharth, I think that, you know, that pretty much sums up the entire controversy here under 251. Um and hopefully we'll get this clarity that you're looking for soon, uh, particularly from this reference pending in the Delhi High Court, but also from the Supreme Court, which seems to be taking divergent views on this topic. So thank you so much for spending time with us on this episode. And um, I really look forward to you joining us again to discuss another exciting issue in criminal law. Thank you so much, Rupali. And, uh... Always a pleasure to, uh, you know, interact both with you and with Project 39A. And I wish uh, both of you all the very best. Thank you. Thanks so much.